Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. This is not necessarily consistent with what you may hear from the left or progressives in general, but I think it's irrefutable that strong families that are not wallowing in poverty, and there's uh, two parents who can help raise children and you know raise money to not have to live in poverty, it's inherently correct. And people should not be in denial of the fact that strong families create strong children who are resilient and able to succeed. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. That was Dr. Irwin Redlener, my guest coming up. He was speaking to me about how strong two-parent families with good jobs are a boon for children in a world filled with child poverty, misery and deprivation. Dr. Irwin is author of The Future of Us, What the Dreams of Children Mean for 21st Century America. Dr. Irwin is a larger-than-life public figure. He is a paediatrician and founding director of the National Centre for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University's Earth Institute, a public health analyst for NBC and MSNBC. He is co-founder of the Children's Health Fund, special advisor to New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, and he recently partnered with Cher for communities struggling with COVID-19. Dr. Irwin is a friend of the stars of the entertainment world who have worked closely with him on his humanitarian missions. Anyway, we had a theme song for that Hands Across America project, which Michael Jackson hated. And he started talking about it. And again, I'm just a few feet away from him. And tears well up and he starts crying, talking about how much when he wrote We Are the World, he felt that God was speaking to him and it was coming out of his fingertips as he was writing this song. But this other song, which he called the jingle that Hands Across America was using, was very offensive to him. And he was emotionally distraught. So I'm trying to sketch out this vision of Michael Jackson sitting across from me crying as a my hair was standing on end. It was an unbelievable experience. But yeah, so I didn't really hang out with Michael Jackson, but I did have those that kind of experience. I did hang out with Lionel Richie and went to recording studio. We went used to go shopping in, in Hollywood after midnight because they would open stores for him. You know, Kenny Rogers was on the board and Harry Belafonte. I mean, it was it was a, a heck of an experience. Dr. Irwin has fascinating gems. He'll tell us about the remarkable late-night dinner he once had with former Cuban strongman Fidel Castro. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, We'll probably stay together. Probably? (laughs) It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, Okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Well, it's good to have you back again. I hope you're all doing well out there and keeping well and safe from COVID-19 and shutdowns and the like. My guest is very interesting. I think you're going to enjoy what he has to tell us about the world of children, the world of COVID, and 
child poverty. He is Dr. Irwin Redlener, an advocate and campaigner for children who live in poverty, and he's author of The Future of Us, What the Dreams of Children Mean for 21st Century America. I first asked him to walk us through the essential idea of this book. The original uh, premise of the book that I did publish a few years ago is that we have a an enormous problem in the United States with far too many children who are at serious disadvantage facing all kinds of adversities that, in effect, keep them from realizing their dreams and aspirations as uh, that they that every child has. And um, I talk about in the book what happens to children who are not able to progress along a, a a positive trajectory and end up being able to have an opportunity to do what they want to do. That's terrible for them and for their families and communities. But it's also terrible for the country as a whole because we end up having millions of children who are, you know, entering, you know, the criminal justice system or one way or another not succeeding and certainly not able to meet their uh, their potential. And the book starts off, uh, John, with uh, a number of stories of actual children that I know and have taken care of. And um, and then it goes into my uh, how I've sort of managed these kind of challenges throughout my career, but concludes with uh, a lot of information about what needs to be done. The update of the book is really about how all this is playing out in the uh, era of the pandemic and in what I've been referring to as the pandemic generation, which are the kids that were already at disadvantage before the uh, virus ever appeared and now are way farther behind uh, than they had been. So it's a really quite serious crisis. Now, where do you fall on that and how the government and local authorities have dealt with the pandemic in terms of education, schooling, and children? There's very polarized views on that. Yes, and in fact, unusually polarized. I mean, you know, take Canada, our neighbor to the north, is a pretty politically polarized country normally speaking but they managed to kind of work together so the development and implementation of uh, policies to uh, control the pandemic spread uh, were significantly more effective than we were able to do here because we've gotten so uh, immersed in these uh, partisan political battles about who's doing what or who hasn't done what Uh, but at the end of the day uh, we've paid a heavy price for uh, a significant amount of incompetence on the federal government level and dishonesty, and then all exacerbated by these uh, horribly uh, divisive times politically and ideologically in, in the United States. So it's been a disaster. We, my center at Columbia just issued a report uh, that said this is as of a Friday and a half ago, a week and a half ago Friday, but the report said that if we had implemented the same policies as Canada or Germany, we could have saved 130,000 lives of the 217,000 lives that had been lost at that point. But if we had followed what Japan or South Korea did, we could have saved 200,000, almost all of the lives that we lost uh, since the pandemic began. And a lot of that extra loss of life is attributed to uh, a horrendous amount of mismanagement by the federal government, which has created chaos in the U.S. around uh, how various states and localities have to manage in the absence of uh, federal leadership. Well, let's go back to the book, and we can come back to the pandemic and the response to it in a little bit. The book discusses children that dream big, but are often unable to achieve their dreams because of reasons outside of their control. So can you talk about some of those social factors like poverty, lack of health care and poor education, and how they shape the outcomes of America's youngest generation? Sure, but let me let me do it from the perspective of a particular kid, and then we can expand from there. And this is a it's really the first chapter in the book, and it's about my experience a number of years ago. We have these mobile children's clinics that we've used to care for uh, very disadvantaged kids, many homeless children, et cetera, around the country. But this is on one of our New York mobile units, and I was the pediatrician. 
and we stopped at a site that has was a foster facility for children who came from homeless families. So very, very poor children. I go to the examining room, uh, one of the examining rooms in my mobile clinic, and I see a little 10-year-old kid named William. He's dressed very, you know, shabbily, and he's obviously very poor. He's undernourished. He's not making eye contact, and I'm trying to break through as a pediatrician. When I, The magic question is often, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he lit up, and he looked at me, and he said, I want to be a paleontologist. Now, for this 10-year-old, absolutely indigent child on a mobile clinic, to say that to me was really stunning. I mean, I said, well, that's great, but what is a paleontologist? He said, somebody who studies dinosaurs and looks for dinosaur bones. And I said, that's right. How do you know about that? And he takes from his pocket a yellowed old newspaper article from the New York Times from the year before, which talked about a, very, a famous paleontologist. And I look at this child who's not going to school, who's dirt poor, whose family is homeless, and I'm thinking there's no way on earth that this kid is going to become a paleontologist. There's just there's too many barriers. He's not going to school. The schools he was going to were in terribly depressed neighbors and not very good. He was behind on all his immunizations. He wasn't getting health care. And it was a very distressing experience for me as a doctor and as a father and now a grandfather to see a kid whose dreams were like my own children, but who had no shot at achieving those dreams. And that really started me thinking about this book that ended up being The Future of Us. And uh, there were a number of stories, another kid in a waiting room in the South Bronx uh, clinic who wants to be a marine biologist. And she was also in very bad straits in terms of her family's economic status, her own education, and so on. And these were very moving to me. And I... Um, I was motivated to kind of, I told, I have about uh, six or seven of those stories in the book, in the front portion, and then I talk about the kind of work that we've been doing and how we got to this point in our work, and then the book concludes with uh, what it is that we need to do as a country to fix this. If you think about it, this is not just a matter of compassion and humanity, which it should be all about, but it isn't. It's also about what kind of country the United States is going to be in the decades to come. And if we are wasting the human potential of millions of children who are poor, that is going to be, as I said, horrible for those kids, but also will place a burden on America's ability to be successful economically and to remain uh, an influential, an influential uh, power in the world where we're respected for innovation and development, et cetera. And, you know, I don't see the 21st century, unless things drastically change, being another American century like the 20th century has been characterized. So I think we have a lot of challenges and a lot to do, but it's doable. And I wanted to leave with a leave the book with a uh, an outcome that that could reflect some optimism if we can get our act together. What are the numbers and raw statistics on children who are yeah. in poverty in America? I saw. A number, I think it was published by the Children's Defense Fund, one in six children in the U.S. live in poverty. That's about 11.6 million. It's yes. probably trending higher during the pandemic. Yes, it is trending significantly higher. And by the way, that number cited by the CDF uh, is accurate at a point in time, but it's been up and down between 16% and 21% over the years. And it looks like, you know, it's just a wave that goes up and down depending on who's in, in office at any particular time, but it never goes to zero or anything close to that. Between one in six and one in five is actually the way to look at that, and that's a, a lot of children. And it's a tremendous burden because what we're doing is trying to repair and have them catch up uh, with uh, the losses they've experienced in you know, 17, 18 years until they can get out of high school, if they do get out of high school. And that recovery from severe poverty is almost impossible for many children. So and that's that. And there's also 16 or 17 million children who live in families that are food insecure. It's a fancy name way of saying hungry. And um, these kind of burdens are 
not okay for for a developed country with the wealth and the power that the United States has. Um, and I think that this notion, children are able to realize their dreams, John, is something that is shared across partisan political lines and ideological lines. I mean, I never met anybody, and I got people in my own family, my wife's family, who are in a very different place politically than I am, but nobody says, oh, it's okay for so many children to be unsuccessful, not to achieve their dreams. We all agree on it. We just haven't committed what we need to commit to make it to, to fix the, the underlying problems. So most reasonable people in America and in the West would agree that children shouldn't have to live that kind of a life you describe in your book. Decent people want to see everybody lifted up and have a yeah. chance at the ring. The debate begins on the solutions, and that's where it gets sometimes controversial. Yeah. And you can't bring both sides together. Right. So first of all, parents themselves have to be more empowered. And by the way, um, you know, a lot of very, you know, uh, progressive people on the left in the United States feel that all the solutions are government solutions. People on the right, on the other side of the spectrum, say, no, raising children is a parent's responsibility. And I say they're right. It is the parent's responsibility, but it also... Uh, there's also a major role that's absolutely necessary on the government. So it's really a partnership between government and parents. I mean, there's, you know, I've never seen a mother, even of the poorest kids and the families who are homeless, who didn't want the best for her children. And they're very aware that their kids are going to lousy schools and so on. Um, but parents can't build a new school in the South Bronx or in rural Mississippi. That's a government's job. And on the other hand, governments can't be raising children either. That's the parents' job. So I think like many things now that we debate, it's usually a combination of principles that work here. But at the end of the day, uh, we have to have government making the investment so that no child goes without health care. No child is go, has to go to a, a lousy school. That's just not fair. And no child should grow up uh, being hungry for significant portions of their lives. So this is where it gets tricky because we're saying to government, we need to commit to what amounts to, and I've been calling a Marshall Plan uh, for children in America. The Marshall Plan, for listeners who may not uh, recall, is, is the plan that allowed the U.S. and its allies to rebuild Europe after World War II. And it was unbelievable that it went from piles of rubble in cities everywhere in Europe after a devastating world war to the modern Europe, which is really quite spectacular and on the par with other developed uh, countries in the West. So we can do this, but we just need to make the commitment that we've got to make the investment on a large scale, but it'll pay itself back because the better we do this, the more productive children will be, the more taxes they'll pay, the more our economy will be vibrant as opposed to paying for you know, kids going to, you know, becoming incarcerated and all that, we could pay for a positive future for children, which, like I said, everybody should agree with. All decent people, John, as you said, should. So you believe in the role of strong families as well as government in yes. helping kids have a brighter and better future. It's interesting to hear you acknowledge that and not everybody on the left would stress it the family side as much as you would you know you look at america and the west i mean the 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 prevalence of divorce and its impact on children and we could debate that of course is there a role here for strengthening families and relationships among couples so that we have less divorce and in turn yeah, have stronger sure. families overall absolutely yes and i know that this is not necessarily consistent with what you may hear from the left or progressives in general, but uh, I think it's irrefutable that strong families that are not wallowing in poverty, and there's a, a two parents who can help raise children and you know raise uh, money to uh, not have to live in poverty. This is all very critical, and I you know this is it's inherently correct, and people should not be in denial of the fact that strong families create strong 
children who are resilient and able to succeed. But for goodness sake, I mean, can't have children who are hungry and expect them to be studying or children who are up all night coughing with asthma that's not being treated properly and expect them to stay awake in the class the next day. So this is not an easy thing, and it involves solutions that seem to be, uh, you know, uh, natural on the right and solutions that seem to be natural on the left to come together and make solutions that are right for everybody regardless of their uh, political and ideological positions. Sounds like you'd need a lot of bipartisan buy-in. What about the role of non-profits, non-profit social organizations, churches, synagogues, community groups in assisting in this kind of program that you're pushing yeah, so, here? Right. So faith-based organizations, churches, synagogues, and so on, also non-profits like the Children's Defense Fund, and even my own organization, the Children's Health Fund, have very important roles. The problem is so we developed, and we've had running now for 34 years almost, um, this program, which has 53 mobile clinics around the country. We take care of hundreds of thousands of children each year. And um, it's good. I, I'm very, very proud of it. It gives great quality care to children in extreme need. But it has to be scaled up. We cannot scale these programs up. Faith-based uh, organizations can't either. They have to be scaled up by government. In other words, if the model works, that's developed by, you name it, any, any uh, faith-based organization or health, you know, not-for-profit like mine, the work is great. But if they don't get scaled up, which takes way more resources than we can raise, uh, if they don't get scaled up, then they just exist as model programs or demonstration projects, which are intriguing and do good work for a limited amount of children. But when I revert back to the numbers, uh, John, that you asked me about earlier, number of kids in poverty and so on, um, it's just scratching the surface. No matter how good my program is, uh, it's not going to solve the problem. Um, and this is a, that's a question of scale. And it's something that I don't think not-for-profits understand enough. So we have many, many, you know, thousands of good programs that are small and local. And we need them to be, first of all, evaluated what really works and what doesn't work. And if they do work, goodness sake, let's, let's fund them. It's, it's like the issue of pre-kindergarten school for four-year-olds. And it's been tried in different places, including New York City, and it works great. But every single child in America, every single child should have an opportunity to and be uh, required to go to a pre-K when they're four years old. And in fact, a lot of people would say, for children who live in disadvantage, going to school at age three, so a, a, a pre-pre-K program, it would be wonderful if every child in America could start school when they were three. That would be fantastic, and the, and the long-term benefits of that would be extraordinary. Some poor inner-city neighborhoods, not all, uh, you take a walk through them, uh, or you talk to people in charity groups who have done volunteer service. I've done some volunteer service myself in some of these neighborhoods. Yeah. I will tell you that it's a very mixed situation. You just run into pockets of despair almost and hopelessness. Sometimes the impression you get from, from the yeah. locals is that, oh, it's not just all about the money or cash. It's just... They want some purpose in their life, something to do. They want a job and so on. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, so, so I'm wondering yeah. if there was bipartisan buy-in for even, and this gets controversial, opportunity zones pushed by the Trump administration but, or something similar. Yeah. Would this go in the right direction for you? It would go in the right direction, of course. And, um, you know, there's plenty of examples where, Neighborhoods that were in total despair, like the famous example is the 1970s when the Bronx, you know, was burning, was what people used to say. But now the Bronx, the South Bronx, there's a revitalization there with new housing and shops. And I mean, it's pretty amazing. It's almost miraculous. But opportunity zones, when done right, are exactly what's needed. We need to rebuild. Uh, you, the neighborhoods, and we need to create economic opportunities, and we need to 
you know, build better schools that are doing a better job. So it's a multi-sector, multi-pronged approach, but it's, but that's the right idea. It's not cheap to do that, but the investment pays off tremendously. The other side of this is just this polarization in America. If both sides can't come together and even agree to disagree, how can we take the next positive step? We keep coming back to this theme that the partisan differences and the ideological differences are extreme. And, of course, the recent election has, has really exacerbated all of that. But the fact is that we cannot get anywhere if everywhere we go we're fighting with each other. Exactly. And this is something that has been very troubling over these last few years in particular. You know, President Trump has been particularly polarizing. And there we, there you have this uh, situation, which I, I hope we could have avoided, where our stands are based on our political connections or political uh, affiliations uh, as opposed to what are the problems and how do we solve them together. And that that is something that is endemic now in America, and it's something that we have to really think about how to turn that around. After this wee break, we'll be back with my guest, Dr. Irwin Redlener, and he'll share how he has worked with some of the biggest stars in the entertainment industry in his work for impoverished and disadvantaged children across America. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. I asked what kind of family she wanted. She said, a family like yours. Learn more about adopting a teen at AdoptUSKids.org. You can imagine the reward. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. You have had a fascinating journey throughout your career, working with both disadvantaged youth across the nation, you've spoke about that, to some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, from Michael yeah. Jackson, Michael Jackson, yes, correct, and Cher, I had to pause for a moment when I saw Michael Jackson and Cher, yeah. to Paul Simon and Mark Anthony. So what is the team that has strung together the experiences you share in this book, The Future of Us, and how have you gotten such big names on board yeah, with these so initiatives. I was spoiled, basically, as a young doctor in uh, my first job in Mariana, Arkansas, which was the sixth poorest county in the United States at that time. This is 1971. And the clinic that I was running was, and I was 27 years old, was running out of funding. So out of the blue, I wrote to this iconic superstar named Joan Baez. And a lot of people don't know who she was, but I, she, I wrote to her manager in Boston, I'm in Arkansas, not expecting much. I said, we're dealing with these horrible problems and kids and who are starving and need the healthcare and so on. And I sent some pictures of uh, what we were seeing in the county in terms of actual children and so on. And much surprise, surprise, a few weeks later, I get a call back and it's Joan Baez who calls me. And I was, listen, in the early 70s, Joan Baez was at the peak of her career as a unbelievable, iconic, folk singer, and also social activist. And she wrote back, and long story short, she came to visit us in Arkansas, spent a few days, and organized a uh, a benefit concert, which she held in Memphis, Tennessee, which was the closest big city. And she also encouraged successfully the governor of Arkansas at the time uh, to sign the papers to allow us to get more federal funding. So Listen, at, at that impressionable age, where I also, you know, I was a Kennedy Johnson kid, mm. uh, raised, you know, that era, I thought everything was possible. We'd fix uh, poverty and uh, child hunger and all of that. And uh, and then all I had to do was write a letter and Joan Baez pops up. So for my entire career, you know, I was feeling that, well, we're going we're gonna to do whatever we can to engage people who are well-known to help us in whatever the cause was. And then... I ended up, you know, years later as the medical director of uh, USA for Africa, which did We Are the World, which is where I met people like Harry Belafonte and Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie. And that was an extraordinary experience uh, as well. So, and then Paul Simon was one of the singers that went on We Are the World, and he lived in New York City. I met him. He was very concerned about homeless children and families, as was I. 
And that's how we started the Children's Health Fund, my not-for-profit organization, in 1987. So it's been one thing leading to another, and it's been an extraordinary journey. Um, and I, you know, it's, it's just impressed upon me so much, John, how everybody's got a role in fixing the problems that affect everybody. That includes corporate leaders and celebrities and you know, healthcare workers, volunteers, church, uh, faith-based organizations, and so on. No one element in our society can fix this. No Paul Simon or Michael Jackson or Joan Baez or, you know, your your local minister or, or anybody can do this on their own. It's really the team has got to be there, and the team is big, it's influential, and it has resources, and it's command potentially, and that's the way we have to think about solving these problems. Did you get to hang out with Michael Jackson? He was a very, he was a fascinating character, was, tragic end in life, of course. And he yeah, was yeah. A, sort of yeah. a perennial child himself. I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but of course he got into some controversies, oh, whether yeah, no, true no, or untrue. We'll never quite yeah, know. Incredibly troubled, problematic, and I don't want to get into the issues about uh, how he dealt with children. It's a whole other story. But So Michael Jackson was on the board of USA for Africa, which did the We Are the World song. And, and in fact, he co-wrote the song with Lionel Richie. And he was on the board, but he never came to board meetings, except one time, came to a board meeting, and I'm sitting literally opposite him, three feet away from him, on the other side of the table, looking at him. And it was and I described this in the book, but it was an unbelievable experience because we were starting another project called Hands Across America. And some people may remember this was about doing something about hunger in America. And anyway, we had a theme song for that Hands Across America project, which Michael Jackson hated. And he started talking about it. And again, I'm just a few, away from, a few feet away from him. And tears well up and he starts crying, talking about how much when he wrote We Are the World, it, he felt that God was speaking to him and it was coming out of his fingertips as he was writing this song. But this other song, which he called the jingle that Hands Across America was using, was very offensive to him and he was emotionally distraught. So I, I, I'm a terrible artist, but I, and of course we didn't have phone cameras at that point. So not that I would have even used it, but so I'm trying to sketch out this vision of Michael Jackson sitting across from me crying and it's a, can't even find that sketch now but I was my hair was standing on that it was an unbelievable experience but yeah so I didn't really hang out with Michael Jackson but I did have those that kind of experience I did hang out with Lionel Richie and went to recording studio we went used to go shopping in, in Hollywood after midnight because they would open stores for him um, you know Kenny Rogers was on the board and Harry Belafonte I mean it was it was a, a heck of an experience that uh, was very, made a huge impression on me for a lot of reasons, some good and some bad. But these were all described in the book because I knew people who would, would probably be interested in I've had a pretty unusual career or unique uh, for a pediatrician, but it is what it is. And, uh, yeah, we've had a lot of, and by the way, the and Paul Simon, who I was very close friends with, became a door opener. And I described a lot of that also because when I wanted to go advocate for children in the U.S. Congress, we'd simply say, Dr. Redliner and Paul Simon wanted to meet with the, you know, majority leader, let's say, of the Senate. And every door was flung open. Everybody was very anxious to be, you know, get the opportunity to speak with a, a superstar like Paul Simon, who was at the peak of his career at that point. And that was it. That's always interesting so, that these lawmakers yeah. are awed by celebrities, even though lawmakers themselves are often big celebrities, I've noticed. I that. know it was it was a, it was just amazing. You, know, you go into the uh, into the office of the Senate Majority Leader, it was George Mitchell at the time, and the doors would be open, and they couldn't stop talking to him, <laughs> and wanted more. And this this went for you know because we were very bipartisan. This went for Republican and Democratic lawmakers they were in awe they were like they were like children not, not, they were like young people looking meeting their favorite you know movie star or singer uh but yeah their staffs went nuts but so did the so did the principals it was pretty amazing but it opened what it did was for me uh was it allowed me to establish relationships 
with a lot of very senior, important members of Congress that we uh, continued to visit with and get to know, and they were helping us advocate for programs that would uh, benefit children. So celebrities so can do good work. Tremendously good work. It was, but I never would have got into to meet with uh, the Senate Majority Leader on my own. You know, I'm not, I wasn't his constituent, and, um, you know, I, I guess it could have happened if we pushed hard enough, but I said I'm coming with Paul Simon. Doors flung open, hmm. as you can imagine. Maybe they were looking for a campaign donation. <laughs> <laughs> It was more than that. <laughs> I know. It was more. It was like, you know, awestruck. Yeah, I'm sure they yeah. would. Have, they would have asked for autographs if they weren't embarrassed. But <laughs> you know. did you have any opportunity of rubbing shoulders with Bono? Yeah, I met him a couple of times. No, but I didn't actually work with him. I met him through some other people. But. Another fascinating VIP because he can work on both sides of the aisle. He's been a little quiet lately. Maybe it's COVID, but. He's done a lot yeah. of work on Tremendous. poverty in Africa. Sustained way, and which is what, you know, a lot of celebrities will work on a project for a little while. They'll lose interest in that set. But Paul Simon worked for 30 plus years on uh, health care for children and other, and other um, charities. Bono has worked on poverty in Africa for decades. So these are the, and Joan Baez, of course, who I still work with to this day, including like, few days ago. Joan has, her whole life has been devoted to social activism and justice and so on. By the way, and I think um, there's something that's interesting about the celebrities. Some of them are very sensitive to looking too partisan, too left-wing, too right-wing because of the consequence for their career. And some of them have said to me, why do I want to risk losing half of my fan base because I look like I'm supporting the Democrats or the Republicans. And others have never cared, and Joan is one of those. Harry Belafonte is another one, and he's a spectacular human being as well, who I work with a lot. Yeah, so that always seems interesting to me, that, that some celebrities think their career will be jeopardized if they look too political. And some, like Bon Jovi and Bruce Springsteen, seem to care less. They do what they're going to do, you know. It's fascinating. I mean, we could take the Dixie Chicks had a career crushing yeah. moment when they uh, ranted against the Bush administration, and they've had yeah. to change their name, of course. Right to the Chicks, right? Whatever. Yeah. What are they? Who are they? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, where did your empathy come from? Why do you have this uh, compassion, which we all should have, or it's nice to have for sure? You can't mandate compassion. But where did it come from inside you? Wow, John, that's a big question, and I, I don't know. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to know. I was raised by parents who were. My mom was a teacher, loved teaching and kids, and my dad was a psychologist, but a very, very active in social causes. In fact, lost his job during the McCarthy era. He had been working in the VA. Veterans Administration Hospitals as a psychologist. And, uh, you know, he was accused of being, you know, whatever it was, a communist or whatever, and he lost his job. But my parents who were, it was no overt teaching of like, this is what you should do and follow my example. I don't think my mother ever uttered a word about that or what I should be, or my father for that matter, who was a complex guy. And I wrote about them also. He had a huge temper. He was sort of up and down mood-wise all the time. And um, But somehow, some combination of genetics and exposure, and I, there were things I did when I was like in my teens. One of them, and I also described this in the book, was I was working in a program. That I, I was being trained to work in a program that dealt with inner-city youth and opportunities. And part of that experience um, there's many different things that we went to. One of the things that I went to was what was called the reform school in Ohio, where they had kids as young as six years of age who were basically incarcerated. I wrote about it because it was such a searing experience for me. And I thought, I remember this distinctly thinking, how on earth does a six-year-old get put into prison? What went wrong? What is What are people doing? And you know, there were experiences piled up. And even when, you know, when I was training as a physician, again, described in the book, some very, very difficult, life-changing experiences that I had running an intensive care unit for children and so on. I think all of this accumulates. And for me, 
became, you know, what I what I think made my personality and my perspective about life what it is. But I don't know. You know, we need a John. You and I would need another few sessions of psychotherapy. <laughs> well, we will have out, you but... back for this. We will <laughs> yeah. certainly uh, go through that because I what you what wonders why humans should be compassionate. We should be. It seems like a normal reaction, but there, there, there's evil in the world as well. And so why are people evil? And we could get into yeah. theology and so on. I forgot to mention one character, and it might make the hair stand in some of my listeners' heads. You dined with Fidel Castro. Tell that us was, about that. Here's the story. So Karen, my wife, and I were very close friends with the late astrophysicist named Carl Sagan. And he was one of my mentors, and we I was totally inspired by him. We were very close to him. He died in the late 90s. Turns out that Fidel Castro was a – and Carl Sagan was a pro- prolific writer and speaker. He was an unbelievable person. And Fidel Castro had always wanted to meet him, and then he died. So Fidel Castro, through in a U.S. church organization, invited Carl's widow named Androyan. Let me stop you there. You Through a church organization? He, a church, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The Council of Churches, mm. where Fidel Castro had some links, uh, and they mm. reached out to Carl's widow named Anne. And the Castro, basically, the message was he'd like Anne to come visit him in Cuba because he really missed out on meeting the late Carl Sagan. So Anne basically said, I'll go, but I'm bringing some friends. I'd like to bring some friends with me. So my wife and I and another couple were in the entourage and went to Cuba. And I said, I wanted to, I wanted to visit. I'm a physician, a public health person, and I wanted to visit uh, as much as I could of Cuba's healthcare system. So we were there. We came, we were there for a week. We were there maybe four or five days when we got a message that Fidel wanted to meet with us, have dinner with us. So we went to the, palace and had dinner with Fidel Castro. Again, I was sitting right across the table from him. Started, we got there about 8.30. We spent some time just chatting with him, just seven or eight of us and Fidel and a couple of his aides. Then we had dinner that went to about four o'clock in the morning. And it was amazing, John. It was, first of all, I, I really pushed him hard on things like his mistreatment of people with AIDS which was pretty horrendous then, and how he was governing and all that. On the other hand, I mean, Cuba had one had and has one of the best public health systems in the world. But what was stunning, and I, what I wrote about, was at the time I was building a new children's hospital in the Bronx. I was in charge of this project, and he said to me, "What? How many ICU beds for children are you putting in your hospital?" I said, I "Came out that I was 16 or whatever." I said, and he said, how many children are in your service here? I said, 400,000 poor kids. He said, um, that's, I don't think that's enough ICU beds. And I had this actually detailed conversation about hospital building with Fidel Castro. And I'm thinking, what? Oh, my God. What am I, I, even while it was happening, I was feeling this utterly surreal. But it was, listen, a, a very, very unique experience, which I still think about from time to time. What year was that? It was 1990. I'm sorry, 1999 or 2000. What was on the menu that night? It was a variety of, you know, uh, I think there was a beef dish and some, you know, traditional Cuban dishes and so on. But uh, I'm sorry, it was 1999 in February is when it was. Another complex character, and we could have another long conversation about Fidel. He was educated by Jesuits and... Mm -hmm. You wonder about his motivations, and of course, Cuba was in a very bad way at the time of that revolution, and many people uh, would like to see the back on communism, including your gracious host. But we'll return to that. Are things improving, you think? Is it going in the right direction now, Cuba, or is, has it been damaged by the pandemic and other factors we're yeah, not aware of? I don't of? know. You know, it's very hard to say. Without, I haven't been back since. And uh, no particular desire to go back there. But I think it's a fascinating study. I mean, I think he was the longest serving ruler in the world until he died. Uh, And he, you know, he led the revolution against a really pretty bad authoritarian Batista. But they went from one extreme to the next and created a system that had ended up with great health care 
you know, Cuba produces some of the best doctors in the world, and they send them all over the world for to work in underserved areas. There's political motivation behind that, too. And, I mean, like you said, John, this is very, very complicated situation. And it was basically significantly, you know, evil dictator on the one hand who did a lot of good for his his countrymen on the other hand. So a mixed bag is what he was. And it was just fascinating to be there and to have this very unique experience of actually having dinner with him was something that I really had wanted to write about. And that's why there's a pretty long section about that in the book. Um, did I, you know, I don't know how they're doing now. You know, they've had, uh, you don't hear from them much without Fidel there, this magnetic, extraordinary, uh, charismatic figure. I mean, he said things like, his one of his biggest dreams was he wanted to die a natural death, not be killed by the CIA, who had made many attempts to assassinate him. And he got his wish in that way. And, and uh, but on the other hand, you know, we visited with the American, you know, it's not really an embassy, but it's called the interest group of U.S. diplomats. We're all, you know, CIA connected and so on. And um, everything about it was was weird and surreal in, in Cuba. Um, a lot of Cubans are very unhappy, and a lot of Cubans are fine and really adore adored uh, Fidel. It's it's like any other country where there's a totalitarian, authoritarian uh, leader. You know, it's even even with Donald Trump, he has supporters who would jump off a cliff for him, and mm-hmm. other people who really dislike him. And I think people like that are very polarizing. They do some good. People have to make a judgment about where on the spectrum they ultimately fall, and are they comfortable or not uh, with a particular leader like that? Many of the Cubans, especially the doctors and so on that we met, were, first of all, wonderful uh, professional colleagues, uh, but many of them very proud of the fact that no Cuban did not have access to health care, period. And that's something that we cannot really say in the United States, of course. And, you know, that they, they were always suffering from lack of equipment and supplies in their hospitals in Cuba. Uh, and and we helped them with some of that, but uh, they also, you know, they, it was kind of a mixed bag for them too, because they needed all kinds of things uh, in the hospitals, but they, they were very proud of the fact that two things going for them in health. One was that every single Cuban had access to very high quality health care. And secondly, some of the research labs were amazing in Cuba in terms of vaccine development, new medications, and so on. Just One for the history books, your memories there and what you tell me. So you're a pediatrician founding director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University's Earth Correct. Institute. You're also regularly on cable and network TV as a commentator. You're even an advisor to New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. You have done so much work, the future of us, what the dreams of children mean for 21st century America. You've just released it on paperback. Correct. Updated on paperback, right. What do you see for the future of children? Is it a better future ahead? People ask me if I'm an optimist or a pessimist. I I say I'm an angry optimist because, you know, I'm very, (laughs) very distressed by how where we find ourselves in terms of the prospects for American children. But I also believe that it's possible that we could turn this around. We will need a major commitment and investment. We need to make this not a partisan issue. This is this can't be. Otherwise, we're doomed as a country of influence globally. On the other hand, if we make the investment, and as you pointed out earlier, things have gotten much worse for kids uh, because of the pandemic. But I think we could turn it around, and I think we need to for for those children and for our country as a whole. Um, so that's what it is, and that's what keeps me going. You know, I've, I've never accepted the fact that we're doing so poorly for our children, which is why I'm saying I'm angry about it, which I am, and why I'm a very consider myself a very active advocate for kids. But I do think it's possible we can we can make it better. The pandemic is a disturbing scenario, and it's been tough on kids. They've been at home uh, on their Zoom calls and doing classes online. Not quite the same as being in person and in school and having those social relationships at a very important part in their life and formation. 
no question about it, John. You know, the other thing about it is that at least 20% of uh, our children cannot do remote because kids in poverty may not have uh, access to the Internet. They may not have the hardware they need, and they may not have the mentors at home that can help them with that. So remote learning is hard enough for more affluent children and families. Mm. It is an almost impossible barrier for poor kids. And then you've internet speed connections in rural areas. Oh, in, in America, and people in the West might be surprised at this. They're not the greatest in some parts. It's horrible. Real deficits in broadband access around the United States, and especially in the rural areas. You know, I often tell people, I was in Uganda a couple of times, the entire country has internet access. I mean, there's one spot we found. It, uh, in Uganda? Where, you know, wow. In Uganda, yeah. And a lot of Africa, you know, they, they skipped the landline, went directly to cellular, and, you know, you can do pretty well. There's so many places. I mean, five miles from where I live, now upstate New York, I can't get reception. And listen, if my education was dependent on having good, fast Internet access, I mean, it would be a nightmare. So the kids that were behind already have now lost a tremendous amount of school and if you miss that, I think this is the point you were making, at critical times in your development of your cognitive abilities, it's very hard to make that up. If you're not reading at grade level when you're in the third grade, uh, it's extremely hard to catch up in everything educationally. So this is why there's a great deal of urgency in what we need to be doing now, John. Dr. Irwin Redlener, it has been a fascinating conversation. Let's get together and talk again once this pandemic is over and we have all the election results counted. Keep up the good work. The book's called thanks, The Future thanks, of Us, What the Dreams of Children Mean for 21st Century America. Thank you. Thank you, John, so much. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.